Nicholas Bornels of Capitalink, and I would like to welcome you to today's podcast in the series Riding the Waves of a Lifetime. This podcast series gives us the opportunity to discuss with maritime industry leaders who share with us career and life experiences, as well as their insight on the industry's direction, opportunities, and challenges. Today, we have the opportunity to discuss with Lasse Christofferson, an influential and outspoken industry leader. And I would like to thank Win GD for sponsoring today's podcast. Thank you, uh, Win GD. Lasse is the group president and CEO, and also a partner and minority owner of the Torvald Clavenus Group. He started his career with the group in 2007, heading up the business unit Clavenus Maritime Logistics. In September 2011, he was appointed Chief Executive Officer for the group and became the first company CEO from outside the Clavenus family. Now, prior to joining Torvald Clavenus, Lasse worked for 11 years for Detnoskia Veritas, DNB, in various positions, including two years in New York starting up the Maritime Solutions Americas for DNV. In 2006, he became director of DNV's operation in Norway. So Lasse, besides his shipping involvement for the industry, he also has an institutional involvement with the industry. He is an executive, as I mentioned, and also a principal and an industry statesman aiming to lead uh, to help lead and drive uh, change in the industry in the right direction. Lasse has a distinguished and I would say fascinating career as an executive and a principal and also as a statesman for, for the industry. Our discussion will include a brief trip down memory lane, then focus on today, and then we will look ahead. We will focus basically on three things, sharing a few career and life experiences, then looking at uh, total cleverness, and then topics that affect the broader shipping industry. It has been a pleasure to cooperate with uh, Lasse on several of our forums, and I would like to thank him very much for his participation and support. So now let me invite him to join us uh, and start our discussion. Lasse, thank, thank you for being with us. Thank, thank you. you, and thank you for inviting me. Of course, it's a great pleasure. So let's uh, start our podcast. And the first question that I would like to ask you is, which I think is particularly relevant in your case, how did you decide to pursue uh, a career in shipping? Has there been a family connection to the industry? How did it all start? Yeah, no, there has not been any family connection to the industry, but I grew up uh, outside Bergen on an island uh, called Aske, and I had uh, I was watching the, the vessels coming in and out of Bergen Harbor every day. So in a way, I've been connected to the sea, always had a boat, and so, so and, and my father um, uh, was very much involved in the fishing or fishery industries and, and distribution of that. So... I had a connection to the sea more than shipping, I would say, uh, and uh, and that put me to to study uh, naval architecture in the Norwegian Technical University. So a bit of a coincidence, um, and no family ties. But I'm happy for the choice, though. And then, how did you actually moving from studying into working in the industry? 
I, I have found that, that life is full of, um, of um, you know, small decisions turning into big uh, turning points. And, and it was, uh, I joined DNV back in 20, 1996, working first couple of years in the offshore side of the business with risk assessments. And, and then I realized that we, in the company, we did a lot of advisory to the oil and gas industry that was not delivered to the shipping industry. And, and that was really where I had my interest. So quite quickly, I, I turned my focus to the shipping industry. And ever since I would say, 2000, uh, also in my most of my time in DNV, I was focusing on on ship owners and ports and and and, and charters and and the back then the risks associated with their operations. So, so I think it was it was probably there was some gravity in me pulling me back to shipping because I I was quite quickly finished with the oil and gas industry. Very interesting. So, can you share with us a few milestones uh, in your career and maybe a couple of major challenges you encountered on the way? Yeah, uh, I, I think um, probably the most important decision gate in my life was uh, when and where to study. Uh, and I remember I was accepted at the university and I came home one afternoon and my mother's uh, welcomed me in the door and said, here's your ticket, you're going to Trondheim, by the way, tomorrow. So, uh, and, and that has really led me to the, to uh, a lot of my friends I have, to my wife actually, which I've met at the university and certainly also my career. So uh, that's one very pivotal moment, I would say. Um, another one uh, was when in the middle of my career in DNV, as, as you said, when, when I was actually looking for somebody to set up the office in, in, in New York on uh, Maritime Solutions, but then we realized that this was a good opportunity for a family to get abroad and, and have that experience. And that, that really opened my eyes to both the international arena to a larger extent, living abroad, uh, and also to the wider shipping context and, and certainly more into the finance side of shipping, which I was not that much involved with prior. So I think that those two years in, in New York, both uh, privately and professionally was truly shaping years. And then maybe the third key point, and then it was a coincidence that I came into Klavenes, that was typical headhunting session. And I didn't know much about the company, but I was there for a couple of years. And then in 2011, when, when the owners decided to, to separate parts in terms of the financial um, portfolio and the shipping portfolio, um, of course, taking up the position as a CEO in a company of this heritage and this um, spirit, that was that was a very big decision for me and has shaped, I think, who I am and what I think today. So um, maybe those are the three milestones and, and, and many of them are coincidences, you know, and it's a question of jumping on the train when you see it coming. You're very right. I think uh, you know you made an excellent point. Uh, life uh, has big decisions, but also a lot of small decisions that lead to big steps. Yes, uh, well, exactly. you're very right. Um, now, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, you have an, in, an involvement with the industry at the helm of a major uh, shipping organization, but you also have served as president of the Norwegian Ship Owners Association for two years. So you have uh, had an institutional involvement with the industry. So can you share with us? Uh, your experience being at the helm of that organization and also major initiatives that you undertook uh, within the organization? 
Well, first of all, I think it's a big honor to be to be promoted to such a role, and, and in a way, uh, be the the spokesperson for the Norwegian industry, shipping industry, and 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 to see how strong a position we have in the world. I, I think you. I mean, there are not many countries that have a more uh, diverse and, and complete cluster on the shipping side than Norway, and and in a way, the Norwegian Ship Association is is the front of that cluster, I would say. So politically, both in Norway and internationally, it, uh, it gives you a lot of opportunities and, and opens a lot of doors to actually influence uh, the, the, what's uh, the framing conditions for industry. Very specifically for me, when I took up that president position, I decided I really want to make a difference on decarbonization and, and, and climate change. Uh, I had the clear sense that this was something that was becoming urgent and our industry were not really taking into account how quickly the world around us were changing uh, so so that was probably the um, the subject i spent most time on both internally but also externally nationally and internationally and and i'm very proud that the last thing we did on my last day in, in service on the general assembly we approved the uh, the uh, climate strategy of the association, which was at least back then, uh, I would say the most progressive one in the world and with having zero by 2050, um, scaling zero emission vessels by 2030, price on carbon, a lot of these things that now are common goods, but a couple of years ago, that was not the given. So I hope and believe that, that uh, the Norwegian Ship Association really has been a shaper of, of that thinking globe. And if I played a small part in that, that's, uh, that was my objective with the whole role. Very interesting. And we will have the chance to, to dive into all these topics in, in more detail as our discussion continues. So let me focus a little bit on the group, on the Torvald Klappenhuis group. I see on the logo behind you, 75 years yes. uh, celebrating. So you joined the it group. It all started in New York, actually. Really? Yes. Uh, it started with, uh, it was, so the old Torvald uh, Klavanes, the founder, he uh, had been part of what was called Nortra ship, which was basically the Norwegian fleet controlled by the government during the Second World War. Uh, and he came out of that with a lot of experience and with an idea to become a ship owner. And he talked to, uh, to a guy called Henry Mercer, who was owning the States Marine Group. And the start of Torvald Klavanes was actually uh, that that they become uh, mentor and mentee and Torvald started to uh, provide him with Norwegian seafarers and eventually that evolved into Torvald Klavanes. So the very start of it was actually in New York in 1946. Very interesting and thank you for this, uh, you know, looking back uh, in history. But now let's also look at the 11 years that you have been with the group. Uh, you took it through, I think, quite uh, development and transformation. Maybe you can uh, Take us briefly through the development of the group and its current operations. Yeah, I, I, uh, let me start with this. I think we have seen 75 years of, of pioneering in the industry. And, and in Klavnes, we have quite a few stories we're quite proud of. And, and again, uh, one of them actually relates also to New York. But, but one of the things Klavnes has been good at is to come up with new technology on the vessels, enabling uh, deep sea freight. One of them on cement. So Klavnes was the first company in the world uh, transporting cement in bulk, not in bags. 
reducing the logistics cost and making export of cement from Norway, for instance, possible and into New York and, and ending up with Clavenes uh, and Norsam, the, the cement producer, having, I think, 30, 40% of the US market at some point. Um, so if you put your hand on something which is built in New York in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I can guarantee you your hand will touch some cement that's been on our vessels. And we have many more of those examples, but what I realized uh, when I took over was that time for uh, competitive advantage on a vessel technology level was hard. And there was so much commoditization and standardization that most vessels were alike. So we had to think through where can we really create value? So, so the first few years in, in my role, I, we, we sold off some businesses, actually cement being one of them. Uh, we sold off our cell phone loaders and, and other things to allow us to have the capacity to invest into new areas. And uh, as of 2014, we had kind of set the, the platform and were able to invest in, in what we believed in. And, uh, and that has uh, very much focused around digitalization and, and, and decarbonization. And all the businesses we have in Clownus today are having that as their fundamental business idea and value creation mechanism. And to just briefly take you through the portfolio, we have Clownus Combination Carrier as a listed company in Oslo, the world's largest um, uh, provider of combination carriers being both tankers and bokers, providing uh, the industry with 30 to 40% lower carbon emission than the competition. And also, luckily, the owners with very nice returns due to high utilization. Then we have the Clavenis dry bulk business where we are a big operator of, of Panamax vessels. We are a big commercial manager through our pools. And we're also delivering uh, research services to the industry. So we are running a total fleet of 70, 80 Panamax vessels uh, in the dry bulk space. Uh, and then we have uh, Clavenis Digital uh, who have a, a software as a service solution for the industry on, on logistics. Uh, we have uh, Cloudness Ship Management running uh, technical ship management and projects. And finally, the last kid on the block, Zero Lab, working with new business models in decarbonization. So today the company consists, I would say, of five key building blocks, but all of them working on the subjects of decarbonization and digitalization. Thank you very much. And uh, we put, uh, you know, my team and I, put some time into researching not only the group, but also positions you have taken yourself for the, for the industry. So let me take the opportunity to focus on a few of those uh, topics that you just raised. So let's start, for example, with the Clavenance combination carriers, which I think is a fascinating concept. As you mentioned, you have a fleet of 17 vessels, which can carry both dry and wet cargo. And yes. furthermore, these vessels have a unique environmental footprint. So. How did you come up with this concept of combination carriers? And uh, is this something that can be replicated widely in the industry? Is it economical? And, and what kind of trade do they serve? Yeah, very good and long question. I'll, I'll see if I can answer it uh, not too extensively. But I mean, the background goes way back. We are now on generation eight and nine of combination carriers. And this was something that Clavenis started way back. And it started with the fact that we realized that we brought, we came into uh, alumina uh, refineries and we were coming in empty and bringing the alumina out. So the starting point was to convert one small cargo hole to be able to carry wet caustic soda back in 
think late 60s actually. And then we have been evolving with the, with the aluminum industry. And that's truly been, I would say, the, the sandbox for us on this, where we've developed concept after concept. And one, um, the previous generation was Provos, they're now gone. Uh, and then we eventually came to the Kabus, caustic bulkers. And they are dedicated to the aluminum industry. And they bring wet caustic soda to, to the alumina refineries and bring dry cargo back to, uh, to where we pick up the caustic soda, either from the Far East or the Middle East or the US Coast. So um, the whole idea was focusing around the bringing a cost-effective, low-carbon service to the aluminum industry. And we were quite successful with that. And we were expanding to nine vessels. And that was more or less the size we could get to in that industry. So then 10 years ago, give or take, we were sitting down and saying, so how can we scale this concept? which is a unique concept where it basically, I mean, you, we have, we earn one and a half to two times the market on earnings. We have 30 to 40% lower carbon emissions. And we are always the cheapest uh, provider of freight because of that. So we had actually several years of testing and discussing with customers. And that led us eventually to the clean boot concept, which is now today uh, eight vessels uh, that can carry in addition to caustic soda on the wet side also all uh, clean petroleum products like diesel and gasoline and veg oils and you have it uh, and then of course also dry bulk so so through that invention and developing that concept uh, we are going from a caustic soda market of 1050 million tons globally to a cpp market of 1 billion tons globally so now uh, the market is not limiting our growth uh, and then you might ask, so why, why aren't everybody using uh, com building combination carriers? And, and I think I can tell you the reason why, because when we, I remember vividly, I was going to the big companies like the Shells and BPs and others back in 12 and 13 and 14. And we presented the ideas and we talked about decarbonization and cost effectiveness. And I said, fine, nice vessels, but we will never use them. In our policies, we say last three cargoes wet. So combination carriers not accepted. So it took really some, I would dare to say boldness on our side to put $150 million forward privately to build the three first vessels to, because we were so convinced that when we produce these vessels and show to them how well they perform, the industry will love them. And luckily we were right, uh, but it took a lot of risk. And today, actually those customers who told us we will never use them five and 10 years ago are today customers of the clean boots. So, um, I think there are quite some barriers to entry that trade because it's, it's uh, very limited where you can trade them. But the core idea is to bring a, a wet cargo into a dry bulk loading. And through that, we are able to have cargo on board 95% of the time and, and provide the efficiency that I just explained. And, um, and so far, uh, customers are happy and nobody have uh, copied us yet. So um, we're still uh, still doing fine. So your market has expanded in terms of the trade that you can employ them at. Uh, out of curiosity, uh, these sound like very sophisticated uh, vessels. Where do you build them? Uh... We built them at the Yangtze Jiang shipyard in, in China, the biggest private shipyard in China. And we had built a couple of series of vessels there before and, um, and had a good cooperation with them. But, but I have to say that uh, it was really a, a 
a challenging task for both the yard and us to build something completely new. I mean, and, and for instance, just one element. Uh, I mean, on a tanker, you have, you know, a fully welded decks. On a bulker, you have open hatch covers. So how do you make a hatch cover that is truly not only liquid tight, but also gas tight on a vessel that constantly moves? So all of these things, we have spent a lot of time and effort and developed actually our own solutions together with partners. And, and uh, we're able now to provide a safe and, and effective solution. And now another very interesting topic is, as you mentioned, these uh, have a great uh, environmental footprint. Uh, they uh, can reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40% compared to conventional ships. How, how can you achieve this? I mean, what do you do to... I mean, let, let me just explain the very simple logic then of, of the dry bulk and wet tankers. And, and Australia is the world's largest exporter of, of dry bulk, and we do a lot of business there. So let me use that as one example. So if you are to pick up a, a, um, an, uh, let's say a grain cargo in, on the um, east coast of Australia, and you had just uh, emptied your vessel in, in China, you will go in ballast down to Australia, pick up the cargo and go back to, um, to China, fully loaded and discharge. Uh, but the other dynamic uh, happens on the wet side. So, so Australia is a big net importer of wet cargo. So a tanker go fully loaded down to Australia with, let's say, diesel to Mel Melbourne, uh, and then go empty back. And that means that they, uh, they use the fuel both on the ballast leg and the loaded leg to provide that freight of that very wet cargo. But we bring cargo both ways. So we can basically distribute the fuel we use and the emissions we, we have on two cargoes instead of one. Uh, but then of course there's some trading, it's not an optimal trade, so that's why we say 34. Even in some trades actually we are on 50%, meaning that you remove ballasting in the equation of emissions. Very interesting. So now let me move on to Clavenus uh, Digital. Yep. You've been a pioneer in this space uh, since you, uh, I think, are the one who came up with the idea of Clavenus Digital in 2013. Uh, based on the research we have done, uh, no one in shipping spoke about digitalization during that time, as you have pointed out. And it's worth noting that in 2015, your team conducted a research across the internet and found that there were only 10 to 20 articles written on the topic of digitalization. Now, fast forward to 2019, this number, as you pointed out, had jumped to 20,000 plus articles. So with COVID-19 accelerating digitalization and technology, these are today, I think, major themes and buzzwords that we are hearing all over the place. So can you share with us your journey on finding this aha moment uh, in digitalization and decarbonization? And how did these become the... Uh, turning point in the uh, shipping industry and what led you to the founding of digital? Yeah, it's a uh, it's, it's very interesting question because this, this is maybe the only aha moment I really had in my life. And, and it was a true aha moment. And, and, and um, let me give you a bit of context. I, I was, I've always been interested in new technology and, and I ordered my Tesla car long before it became a, a commercial uh, object. It was just a concept back then. So thanks to that, I actually got delivered the first Tesla to come to any country outside the US. So the first six Teslas coming to Europe 
I had one of them, and the others went to politicians and others who who uh, just uh, got them basically for marketing. So I was actually driving my brand new Tesla with a lot of fuss down to a CEO summit where they discussed digitalization and disruptive technologies. Going back from that summit, sitting in my brand new Tesla with all the technology, I was thinking, damn, I'm in the wrong industry. I mean, we have, I mean, nobody talks about digital and disruptive and shipping, it doesn't exist. And that's really what I want to work with. So in that car that day, I decided I have to change the industry uh, and, and move to something else. And then eventually, as I was thinking of it, I figured out I was wrong. Actually, it was a big opportunity in shipping because nobody talked about it, uh, but it will come. It's just a question of maturity. So during 2014, uh, both personally and, and in, uh, I spent a lot of time studying the subject, talking to a lot of people in the finance industry and others to understand what is this digital about and how does it change industries? Uh, and that led us to uh, starting the digital team in 2015, where we we tried different stuff. I brought in different consultants and others to help us, but it didn't work. But then eventually we found this team of four guys who had just sold their startup. They were in the late 20s. Uh, and we brought them in and said, do you want to join us in digitalizing the shipping industry? And, um, and so they did. And we tried a lot of different opportunities. We looked into uh, transaction platforms. We looked into prediction models. We looked into uh, performance uh, modules for vessels. And eventually we realized the whole digitalization starts with the customers being digital on their supply chains. So we focused on developing this product called Cargo Value, which is today, I think it's fair to say the leading uh, logistics solution for seaborne trade. So our customers being Hydros and, and, uh, and BHPs and others of the world, they use this to plan all their seagoing shipments, manage that those shipments as they go on, uh, optimize the port operations to, for instance, avoid congestion. And eventually they also have their online inventory management through that uh, platform. So, so today I would say it's a fully fledged supply chain management solution for industrial companies and it's growing quite fast. So we, we will most likely uh, you know, grow the revenue with two to three times this year compared to last. And, and we're today controlling, well, at the end of last year, we're controlling five times more cargo through a digital platform than through our vessels. So that's quite interesting. So uh, we have much more di digital than physical cargos these days. Very interesting. Well, I had a question that you, you answered partly already. Uh, I wanted to ask you how you marry technology and shipping into creating solutions that reduce costs, risks, and carbon emissions. And I was talking about the pioneering products that you're putting together. You already started uh, along those lines. But besides the supply chain management, how do this have also an impact on carbon emissions? Now, we, we have, when we approach digital in cloudness, we do that on three, three areas. One is how can we use technology to solve new problems for customers. And that's the cargo value I just described. Second is how can we use data and analytical tools that we didn't have except, you know, available five, 10 years ago to make better decisions on trading, on market forecasting, on optimizing vessel voyages, on optimizing trim, and all of these decisions all of us make every day. Um, and on that we have but done two things. We have basically made data available from our vessels, from our operations to, to the employees. 
but also invested heavily in training. So, so we have something called Clavenes Academy. And in 2019, uh, we pushed all employees through a full training uh, pack that we developed. Everything from new beginners to data scientists spent in average two hours a week retraining themselves on data and analytics because we truly believe that we had to change the way we took decisions. And I'm very happy to see that that has changed. And then of course, lastly, we also use technology to uh, digitize and automize and eventually robotize processes. For instance, on board where we, over time, we'll have more and more autonomous vessels and, and less people attending the vessels um, as most of the companies are looking into. So I think um, this is very much about using technology to solve valuable problems. Digital is not a goal. Digital is a means for our customers or ourselves to make better decisions. Very interesting. Now, I, researching um, you know, some of your uh, statements in the past, I have the following question for you. Uh, we are now seeing the rise of a shared economy in consumers where one does not need uh, to own the asset. For example, using your own uh, uh, statement in the past, we stream music on Spotify today, whereas people used to buy CDs in the past. Or we use Uber to get us from point A to point B instead, instead of buying a car. So how do you see Clavenus Digital offering this shared economy in the supply chain business? No, I, 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 I think this is at the core of what technology enables. It creates transparency and trust and enabling new ways of collaboration. And, and, uh, and, I, and that's why I've used this Spotify example. And you can go even further back. I mean, back in the days, you had to physically go to a concert. And that was a little bit like uh, US Steel owning their own uh, you know, mining uh, operations and their own vessels and were fully integrated. And then moving that on to the second generation of, of business model in, in music, where you have the LPs and CDs and you brought your own inventory, back then the, the steel companies owned their own fleet. But then eventually uh, in today, no industrial companies own their own fleet. They just utilize the spot market, but they do it in the same way as they did in the analog age meaning that they have all these silos within their companies and between their companies on, on logistics. So we, we truly believe and we can prove and we actually facilitate uh, companies that can, uh, that can cooperate and share logistics. Uh, and that's why we use this Spotify example and that you should have logistics as a subscription not as uh, not you know charter one and one vessel and, and if you're an industrial company in the Middle East importing alumina to your smelter, you should just be able to buy that service from a digital provider and saying give me this amount at that time, and you just fix it. Uh, and imagine uh, that example in, in the Middle East you have five smelters, buying more or less the same product from the same location on the same type of vessels. Uh, so that's not a competitive uh, you know. Uh, element to it. And if we are able to make them subscribing to the same supply chain, they can make a decision every second day, a new vessel is coming into the Strait of, of the Gulf. And then they can decide who needs this vessel most. Instead of deciding 50 days earlier when they fix a vessel from China, going down to Australia, picking up the cargo. So it creates totally new opportunities for 
effective and flexible logistics if you're willing and able to share data and use a third party to orchestrate that. That's what we want to do. Very interesting. Now, you used uh, the phrase five years ago in your strategy plan that the future cannot be predicted, it can only be created. Very, very interesting uh, statement. So where do you see Clavinus Digital in the next five years and what future are you trying to create and, and what problems are you trying to solve? Now, I mean, if you look at, at Clavinus in general on the digital arena, and that not only through the company Clavinus Digital, but also other parts of our businesses, but we have, we have said that the ambition for our business and, and what, what the strategic position we want to take is to make seaborne supply chains resilient, decarbonized and cost-effective. And that means that the core of that service is the cargo value and the industrial company's ability to manage in a resilient way, their logistics. Adding to that, they need to decarbonize their logistics. And that's where we have the Zero Lab coming in. That's where we have the KCC vessels coming in and others that starts with measuring and eventually reducing your emissions. Uh, and we are working specifically on new digital services to help industrial companies to do that. And then the last but not the least one, which is cost-effective, meaning how can you make sure that you use the markets the most effective? And, and what we do today is that we have invested a lot into uh, data and research and models and tools to optimize our trading. But what we now see is that through um, cloud solutions and cloud technology, we can mirror that to an industrial company and enable them to take much better chartering decisions and optimize their market exposure. So in the future, uh, we believe that Clavenes to an industrial company is both a logistics manager, a carbon manager, and a market manager. Quite uh, unique. So let me ask you, you have Clavenes Digital, and then you have the Zero Lab by Clavenes. So what is yep. the cross between the Zero Lab and how do the two Zero Lab and the digital fit together? Now, what, what, what we saw, um a year or two back was that there was uh, there are a lot of focus on energy efficiency on the vessel level but very few looked into what are the business models we need to create to enable industrial companies to decarbonize um and as you know in in, in the tramp uh, business of, of dry bulk and tankers there are no dedicated vessels to dedicated trades to dedicated customers as in, in the liner business so that means for a company like, let's say, Alcoa, the world's biggest uh, aluminum uh, company, I think, if they are to decarbonize their supply chain because BMW tells them that we only buy zero emission uh, aluminum, if they were to do that effectively, they would need to decarbonize more or less all vessels of the world because through a year and through their operation, they will touch into so many vessels because they use the active tramp spot market. So what we believe is that somebody need to orchestrate that market so that uh, uh, a little bit like what's, the, what's happening in the power market. And, and, and when, when you in your home, you can now go out and buy uh, green credits for your power and you can buy your power green. But that's not the electron coming to your house because you can't control which electron comes to your house. It's just the right to say that that green um, power that was produced is I'm entitled to claim the zero emission of it. 
Similarly, we need to disconnect the physical threat and the carbon credits within our industry. And, and in Klamis, we call that incense. Uh, and we believe that that will start happening in what we call green corridors, where you will have a willing industrial company and uh, an uh, enabled shipping company and also access to the fuel. And that's how you will start to decarbonize this industry, piece by piece, corridor by corridor, vessel by vessel. And we need to structure that and syndicate that into a market. So, uh, so and that's the grand mission of Syria. So you combine, as you said, the shipping, the cargo, and the fuel. Yeah. And without owning or controlling any of them, the trading in market where these meet and where the most willing buyer of zero emission freight meets the most able provider of zero emission freight without, I mean, uh, let's say commercially, but not necessarily physically, because you can't dedicate the vessel to a specific trade. Well, we'll talk later on uh, about uh, scope three emissions and scope one emissions and so on. So maybe that's a way to bring the two together in a way. In a way, that's, yeah, yes. So let me now turn to the broader industry questions and let's focus on decarbonization that is a key topic for the industry and also for, for Clavens and yourself. And here, when we talk about decarbonization, traditionally we have three themes, who regulates the process, what are the fuels of the future and who pays for it? So let's start with who regulates what. Uh, should we opt for a global solution through the IMO? But at the same time, we have seen that uh, now we have the risk of a lot of national or regional regulations coming into play. And what is your opinion is the best approach? Now, I mean, by far and without doubt, a solution to IMO is what we should aim for always. However, uh, IMO is not an organization as such. It's a uh, meeting place of nations. Nations who have different uh, priorities, nations who have different abilities. Uh, so for IMO to move, all the members of IMO countries need to move. And it's just a fact that, let's say EU is much more moving much faster today than some other regions. So the problem in IMO is of course that they simply don't agree on how fast and how. And that's why you will see these national and regional initiatives coming up because EU says, we are happy with, we want global regulation, but if it doesn't happen, we will start. So I think it's not optimal, but it's the only, I mean, it's just natural when you are going into a transition like this, that when the world transition at different speed, it's really hard to get the global regulations right from the beginning. Uh, uh, so personally, I've gone from being a skepticist to the EU ETS, where they basically put the, the shipping into their carbon trading and, and, and taxing system. I was skeptic to that, but now I'm uh, actually positive. Why? Because I truly believe that the only way we can solve the, the, the decarbonization is to, is to put a price on carbon. And now following EU's initiative, it's not a question of if we have a price in carbon, because we really need you, it's a question of where, who will regulate it, and who will benefit from that uh, carbon tax. And that I think will change the dynamics of the discussions in IMO, because now countries cannot anymore say, we don't want the tax because it's here. It's a question of, do you want to regulate it globally? And do you want to have part of the proceeds coming out of that tax? So in a way, uh, that's a long answer to your question, but I think 
eventually and ultimately we need global solutions and shipping. But in transitions like this, uh, we will take that in steps. And I think we as a society should be happy that somebody is running forward because the rest of the world will catch up, I'm quite sure. You know, one of the things that I have not been able to understand myself, and of course, you are a lot more involved with the industry than I am. The IMO is a consensus organization. Everybody wants the IMO to be the global regulator. At the same time, as you pointed out, we see regional initiatives coming out uh, with more speed right now. We have the EU, maybe the US will come out with something, maybe China. Yes. So the question that I have is when you see two or three regional initiatives spearheading, how do you then put everything to converge under the roof of the IMO or that's where I find a little bit. Um... No, I, 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 and, and, and you are right and it is a challenge. And then, then of course, if you are waiting for the perfect, you will wait forever. Right. Um, so I think in my view, it's much better that some regions do something to actually reduce carbon footprints, that everybody waits for the perfect solution. So that, that's one element. So I think we as an industry, whether we like it or not, and we can agree that we should have a global solution, we just need to prepare ourselves that this is going to be very challenging over the next decade. I think the 20s, you will see a lot of different schemes coming up with different uh, ways to do it. And it's national and it's regional and so on. Um, so so that, that's number one. Having said that, I sense a shift in the speed of the consensus in, in IMO. I think even those countries who've been dead against any regulations on carbon has moved. Some of them being uh, big ship owning nations that just a few years ago said, we can't bring carbon out of shipping, it's carbon captive. Now supporting uh, ICS going into the uh, IMO meeting with, we need to get to zero by 2050. We need to get a price on carbon. We need to scale uh, zero emission vessels to at least 5% of the fleet by 2030. These things were unthinkable just a few years ago. So I'm, I'm also an optimist that the world is moving forward. We have specific proposals on the table in IMO for a global tax, and also IMO will be forced to update the strategy to get to zero by 2050 as everybody else. So I think, I think the world is moving in the right direction, but there's everything with the climate, not fast enough and not coordinated enough. Uh, so uh, it's gonna be a challenging decade, but the only thing I can tell for sure is that it will be more expensive to emit carbon for every year going forward. Now, moving forward regarding the objectives to be achieved, you have been critical of so-called toe-tipping ineffective measures, and you have stressed the need to push hard for the adoption of harder measures to bring about a change. And you've stated that the IMO goals, at least at present, are a bit low. So, what do you expect the IMO or the overall targets to be, uh, and how can we help the industry move in that direction? Now, I think for IMO, first of all, IMO needs, as I said, to make sure they are relevant. And what is relevant? Well, that means they has to have to be within the framework of the Paris Agreement and the one and a half degree um, goal. And that means that shipping cannot have a strategy of being down 50% in absolute emission by 2050. It just makes you irrelevant. And it's just naive to believe as an industry that we can decide 
when we want to decarbonize. The society decides. And eventually we will wake up in the 30s and see that we have to get to zero so we can just get our act together now. So number one for IMO is to agree that we need to get to zero latest by 2050. And second is that we don't have time for these mongo jumbo small things. We actually need to make sure that latest by 2030, the only responsible financial choice you can make is to order a zero emission vessel. And that means that we only have five to 10 years to scale the, the technology, to scale the fuel and make that business case viable. So, so we need to, in addition to the 2050, we need to, to get a price on carbon. We need to put a price on the stuff we don't want so we can incentivize the stuff we want. And that is the third element of that, that uh, legislation is that we need to use the proceeds from such a carbon tax to neutralize the cost uh, disadvantage of early movers on the fuel and on the vessel. And also probably over time, uh, support those countries who are disadvantaged by, by increased transportation costs. So I think it's quite clear what we want, need to do. Uh, and the bustling thing for me is that for the society as a whole, it hardly costs anything if we get it right. I mean, to decarbonize the shipping industry uh, in total would have negligible effect on the consumer's cost of a TV or a car. Um, and uh, we have the example in Klavenes that we can provide zero emission freight from South America to Europe on grains. And that would only increase the price of that bread in Europe by half a cent. But the price of the freight will be 50 to 100% higher than the brown alternative today. So for an importer of grains in Europe, it's impossible. But if we're able to link the willingness at the consumer down to the business level through a price on carbon, it's not a big challenge for the society. So these are the mechanis uh, mechanisms that we need to you know, uh, make running. And that's why I spent quite some time in ICS and towards IMO, and I'm going to COP26 now awesome. to try to convince that we need to get moving. We are in a hurry. Yeah, I saw your recent uh, LinkedIn uh, postings, uh, you know, indeed. And I wish you a great trip to COP26. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And I'm Me sure either. you're going to be quite vocal there in terms of, your, of stating your positions. But our discussion is based on the need for unity, concentration of effort, maybe to have some commonly accepted benchmarks and, and standards. But at the same time, we see a lot of well-meant uh, initiatives by non-industry organizations, by charters, financiers, a, a lot of well-meant initiatives. Now, how do you coordinate all these? I mean, do all these uh, lead to more complexity? Do they add yes. to the solution? Um, how do you get everybody to work together and maybe create some common benchmarks? Well, that's a, that's a uh, trillion dollar question in everything in the world, I guess. And, uh, and if we just agree that religion is not a, an enemy, it's a friend and so on, we wouldn't have problem. But, the reality of things is that when things change, uh, different interests change at different speeds. Uh, so that you have uh, organizations like you know, initiatives like the Poseidon Principles, the Sea Cargo Charter, all of these initiatives coming out, is just because companies realize that they need to move faster than what the regulators are doing. 
So all these are just expressions that business is moving faster than politics and regulations. And when you have scenarios like this, you will see a multitude of initiatives. And, and that's always the starting of a transition. That is that the business is way ahead and finance is ahead of business and business ahead of regulators. So ideally we should have one standard, one approach, one route. But to me, that's just naive to believe. It will be very complex the next decade to navigate this. Uh, so I think the only robust thing you can do is one, if you save a ton of carbon, carbon, you improve your competitive advantage. And two, if you invest in increasing the competence on, on carbon and energy efficiency, you have probably the best return you can get. Because the world is changing, it's changing fast. It's not changing in a coordinated manner, unfortunately. And you can deny that and tell the world to change, or you can adapt and make it your competitive advantage. And the latter is what we try to do in Cloudless. You know, we had uh, a recent interview with Graham Henderson, who uh, made uh, a statement that I found fascinating. As you know, he is working under the Together in Safety Coalition. Yes. And he said that we should establish something together in decarbonization coalition and get everybody under the uh, that umbrella. And then, you know, you also had Mark O'Neill of uh, Intermanager exactly voicing the need for more concentrated effort and coordination. So. Let's hope that this somehow will, uh, will happen. Um, but but let, let, let us not forget, we are as an industry very lucky. We have IMO. We have a global regulator. Nowhere, no other industries have a regulator like that. So we have the institutions in place. Indeed. I believe they will deliver eventually, uh, but it will be uh, some choppy, choppy seas before that. So let's now turn to the fuels of the future. Uh, we see an increasing number of companies opting for LNG, but at the same time, there are so other uh, fuels under testing out there. So what do you see the, how do you see the process evolving and what could be the final outcome? Huh. Yeah, if, if I knew, I, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here. So, so that's of course um, impossible to predict and that's why we are focusing on shaping. But I think, let me start with this perspective. Um, if you think you can solve the carbon challenge with carbon, you're wrong. So to me, to LNG is a sidetrack we cannot afford anymore. It's probably, you know, from well to wake 15, 20% better than fuel oil, but the times are behind us for when we could be looking at 10 and 20% improvements. So to build a whole new infrastructure globally over the next decades around LNG, if that happened 20 years ago, it probably would be fine. But today we simply don't have the time. We need to scale zero emission at the second half of this decade. Uh, so if you um, invest in an LNG propulsion today because of the energy efficiency in itself, I think we'll be disappointed 10 years from now. But if you invest in LNG as a bridge to future zero emission fuels, you probably do something clever. So, so that, those are two different perspectives on, on LNG. When it comes to the fuel, uh, we are convinced in Klavenes uh, that ammonia will be the fuel of the industry. We don't know, but that's what we believe. Why do we believe that? Well, first of all, what's quite sure is that it will be hydro 
hydrogen will be the atom that basically carries the, the energy of the future, not the carbon, but hydrogen. And hydrogen is then derived either from uh, renewable energy or possibly from gas with, with, with um, carbon capture, so-called blue hydrogen. But I think eventually it will start with hydrogen. If you use hydrogen in its pure form as a gas or liquid, the energy density per weight and volume is more or less the same as lithium batteries. It doesn't work. So to give an example, the, the energy system will have the same weight as the whole vessel if we were to use uh, lithium batteries or hydrogen gas on one of our vessels now. So it, it just doesn't scale on deep sea. So, that, uh, so then you need to look, take that hydrogen on board in a different form. And you have two options. You can add CO2, CO2 into methanol and other e-fuels, or you can add nitrogen into uh, fuel and then it becomes ammonia. And to bring the logic very short, one of the main reasons, two main reasons why we believe in ammonia is that it, we believe it's going to be cheaper than e-methanol. But second, and more structurally, we don't believe that the society at large will put CO2 into a fuel and then release it afterwards in the future. If you have captured CO2, it will be so valuable that you will put it down and store it. So, uh, so that's a main argument in my view for why e-methanol will not scale over the next decades, because it's not CO2 free. It actually emits CO2 and you insert CO2 into the hydrogen. Uh, and I think that that CO2 rather should be stored than released. Very interesting. So we've been discussing for an hour. So I have a few more questions for you. I'll try to speed them up so we don't go, we don't, prolong it too long even though our discussion is so interesting and the point of this podcast is not to have a quick run-of-the-mill discussion but to really go into deep deep into the topics and I, and I appreciate your time so let me ask you one of the things that I found very interesting in your statements is um, that you recently called uh, the scope three emissions as the uh, bastard child of the emission hierarchy now for for our listeners who may not be familiar with this Greenhouse gas emissions are categorized into three groups or scopes by the Greenhouse uh, Gas Protocol, which is the widely used uh, protocol. Yes. Uh, so scope one covers direct emissions from owned or controlled sources, and I think uh, that is for ships. Scope two covers indirect emissions from the generation of purchased electricity, steam, heating, or other cooling uh, areas. And scope three, includes all other indirect emissions that occur in a company's value chain. That includes purchase goods and services, business travel and more. And I think scope three is probably the biggest in terms of uh, greenhouse emissions. So how- yeah, It depends on the perspective you have, but I think the interesting element here is that scope one for one part of the value chain is scope three for the other. Right, so the vessel emissions are scope one for the ship owner, but scope three for the charterer. So, so in a way, if you have again used the Alcoa example, so Alcoa's scope three emissions are everything associated with the products they buy, and the vessels they hire, and and the products they sell. So everything coming in and out basically of their of their factories. So. So in a way, um, scope three has not been really on the agenda for these industrial companies up until, uh, again, we do this research a number of articles. It's only this year that this has become a big topic. So if you ask the big industrial company two years ago, what are your emissions? They would tell you the scope one emissions 
the emissions coming out of the smelter itself. Probably also the scope two emissions, which are from the power station producing the power to make the smelter, but they won't measure scope three. That is not coming. And that's really an opportunity for ship owners because uh, now the scope one of the ship owner uh, in, and the scope three of the industrial company, that is now something that the industrial company is held responsible for. So for instance, back to my example on Alcoa, when BMW buys their, or Tesla buys their aluminum, they tell eventually Alcoa, we want it zero carbon. And for Alcoa to make it zero carbon, it's not enough only to take carbon out of the production and the smelting, they also need to take it out of the supply chain. So that will eventually lead Alcoa to say, well, we need to decarbonize vessels as well. So that's why it's so important, the increased focus now on industrial companies on reporting of scope three is that they are held responsible for the emissions we as a shipping industry are doing. And that's why we will see industrial companies being willing to pay extra to reduce emissions. In a way also that underscores and highlights the very important role of shipping as part of the supply chain. The world cannot decarbonize if shipping does not decarbonize. There's not a single product you can hold, even your glasses, Nico, would need to have decarbonized shipping to be fully decarbonized. We are a part of every value chain all over the globe. 90% of the goods moved are moved on vessels. So there's not a single thing more or less in the world that can be fully decarbonized without shipping being decarbonized. Very interesting, thank you. So let me ask one last question uh, on these topics on diversity. And I know that this has been a topic for the industry and also, I know that uh, your group at Clavenus, we have done uh, a number of initiatives in that direction. So can you uh, share with us your insight on how, on this particular topic? My starting point is not gender, but business. Uh, meaning that we are facing two fundamental transitions in our industry. One is digital and the other one is decarbonization. And for us to be able to tackle that transition, we need access to all the talent we can. And our industry has to a large extent only tapped into half of the world's talent. That will not take us there. So what brought us to where we are will not bring us to where we want to be. So we need to get access to all the talent around. And also we need, when we are going through transitions, we need to do so in a representative way. So if minorities being females or ethnic minorities are not part of that process, it would not be a credible and equitable process. So I think for us to drive this industry through these transitions, we need to do so with a true diverse workforce, both from talent, from credibility, and simply just out of responsibility. We are here to create equal opportunities for people. And that's really something which is important to our industry. And, and uh, I think we're doing better in some areas, but in particular on top executive uh, levels and on commercial roles, there are still a long way to go to get in females. And uh, one of the main reasons why we should have more female CEOs is that they should shape that role different from how these by men 50 plus in the past. Uh, 
the world is changing and so the businesses have. And so also we need to think differently on who runs businesses. So to me, this is uh, both a, a, a business and a responsibility uh, matter. You're absolutely right. And I think the way you coined it, it's even better. It's workforce diversity. It's not tied to a particular element. And I think uh, giving the proper diversity gives you access to the whole talent pool uh, and the industry needs that. So yes. well done, thank you. So last question. Today, we have a low order book across several sectors, such as dry bulk and tankers. Environmental regulations, as we discussed, create uncertainty as to what types of ships to build. On the other hand, the industry focuses and needs younger and more efficient uh, tonnage. So what does this mean for the supply demand balance? And what does it mean for you as a ship owner who wants to place uh, a fleet with mm. your order? Headache, that's my first <laughs> big headache. So I think, I think um, to order a new vessel today without seeing a bridge to zero emission, I would say you are very bold maybe even naive because in that life cycle of that vessel let's say it's delivered in 25 and it lives maybe all the way up to 2050 we will change the energy platform of this industry so it, it's really difficult and bold decisions to be made and i'm sure that a lot of companies are like us that they are still looking into how can we both be competitive in the short term where carbon is the main fuel but at the same time create energy platforms that can bring us on the same vessel into a zero emission. Um, and I'm sure that slows down the, the pace of which vessels are ordered and will, for the short term, I think, uh, mute the supply. Adding to that, the fact that we've had this boom in containers, booking up all the slots and driving prices you know, up, also reduces the financial incentive to order a vessel now. So in a way, um, supply side in tankers and bulkers, you see a quite a perfect cocktail of both high new building prices, limited slots available, and high technical risk, meaning that there's a quite muted interest in, in building vessel time being. Uh, so I, I think we are up for a, a uh, muted supply side. And then let's just hope that the world keeps on developing and that demand side keeps up and then we will have a couple of good years in, in our uh, industry. Yes, so we've been discussing for quite some time and I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you for uh, your tremendous uh, insight. It's always wonderful to speak with people who have not only insight but also strong opinions and, and direction. <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, that's how things happen when you have a plan, when you have a goal, an objective, and a direction to, to move towards. So really thank you for, uh, for your, your insight. I'd like to thank also again, WinGD for sponsoring today's podcast. And I will turn it over to you for some closing remarks. Before we go. No, I think, I think for young people today, going into business life, to have an industry that will transform both the way we do business from analog to digital and the way and the whole uh, energy system that we use from carbon to, to zero emission, that must be the opportunity of generations. So uh, I really, really encourage young, talented people to look at shipping as the industry that will see the biggest change in their career. So please join us.
very much, uh, Lasse. Really great having you with us. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Bye-bye.